0: Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 27th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Jeet Singh, who is the co-founder and CEO of Red Star Ventures, a startup foundry which incubates new businesses. Jeet was also a co-founder and CEO of ATG, a massively successful company in the Boston tech scene. The e-commerce software company went public in 1999 and was later acquired by Oracle for $1 billion. Not only is Jeet a successful founder of tech companies, but he's also a passionate musician and has a band called The Sings. In this episode, we cover lots of great topics, like Alpha Delta Phi, the legendary MIT fraternity, where he met Joe Chung, his co-founder, and other industry luminaries like Brad Feld and Colin Engel. The whole background story of ATG, how giving up $1 million in revenue was a catalyst for scaling the company. The Red Star model and their portfolio companies, including the most recent one called Money Experience, plus lots of other useful advice for entrepreneurs. Okay, quick side note, as I have some really exciting news to share. The VentureFiz job board just eclipsed 3,000 positions in the Boston tech scene. That is absolutely insane. I remember in the early days of VentureFiz, I was excited when we had 50 jobs on our site. So what does this mean for you? It means opportunity. Don't put your career on hold. There's lots of great positions across all levels and all functional areas waiting for you. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with G. Gee, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, I always like to start things off on uh, just kind of an interesting note. So um, you're a musician, you've been playing. It looks like you've been playing pretty much your whole life, right? And you actually have had a, have a band. So tell us about your, your musical career.
1: Well, let's see. So my musical career, unfortunately, took precedence over my academic one, So <laughs> At MIT, I spent a lot too much time, you know, playing in a rock band and then going to class. So, uh, yeah, I started I started in college and, and started writing and, and playing live uh, at that time. Uh, but actually, you know, I, I went through a, 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 you know, 10 or 12 year period, but I didn't play at all uh, during the early ATG days. You know, when it was was busy all the time and then got back into it, you know, 20 years ago.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I'm a hobbyist. I play the guitar and it's one of those things where I need to find more time to play because I I don't. And, you know, I just need to pick up the guitar and and it's just like it's amazing what you can learn online now just looking at YouTube. And so. So that's how I fake it.
1: No, it's good. I mean, you know, now I get to play usually as soon as I walk in the door at home. First thing I do is play for, you know, half an hour, an hour. And that's a, that discipline helps. Uh, first of all, it's great to unwind.
0: It is. It totally is.
1: It's the first room as I walk in the door to the house. So like, okay, pick up the guitar.
0: Maybe that's the, that's the strategy I need to implement in my house. That's the first thing I'll see. So, uh, well, let's take a step back. So where'd you grow up?
1: Oh, well, so, um, my folks were diplomats. Um, my dad's Indian, my mom's Indonesian, but they met in Sweden. So I was born in Stockholm. Um, Mm -hmm. and then pretty much kept traveling around the world. Most of my childhood. So started, you know, kindergarten in Spain and then uh, we were in Russia. Uh, then we were in Saigon during the war. Um, then we were in Colombia, and uh, and then we went in. Uga- went to Uganda during Idi Amin's time. So that was a little bit unusual. Um, but yeah, so uh, that I couldn't really go to school in Uganda. So then I was sent to a, uh, an American missionary boarding school in the Himalayas for all of high school, um, and then uh, and then came to the U.S. Uh, to go to college. So came to Boston. Then eighty one.
0: Wow. So what do you think that upbringing kind of? build as far as the foundation of who you are today
1: oh just you know massive confusion <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh no it's, it's it was interesting for me um you know uh that doesn't really suit all people um so i know a lot of uh, kids who grew up like me and either they love it or they hate it uh mm-hmm. in my case it was great um but also had kind of periods of long stability four years in a row in, in colombia which was just wonderful and then you know high school in one place you know in, in, in india in the himalayas so those are good times not to be moving around too much.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but um, yeah, I mean, it kind of makes you a permanent outsider, which is kind of useful.
0: And then, of course, you land at MIT.
1: Yeah. For my you- career.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so how, I mean, obviously, well, despite the obvious of why you chose MIT, but like, why did you land at MIT of all places?
1: Um, you know, it was kind of bizarre. It was it was actually because I liked Boston. Um, I didn't really know, I couldn't really tell the difference between places. I mean, you know, Princeton, MIT, uh, Cornell, but I, I really did not like um, I visited Princeton and uh, it just felt like a country club. And I had grown up, you know, in the middle of nowhere in the Himalayas. So the city of Boston, like, oh, let's, <laughs> enough of, you know, being out in the middle of nowhere. So I, I chose mostly because of Boston, not really realizing, you know, what MIT was or, or anything.
0: Got it. Okay. Like, like most kids. <laughs> <laughs> and at, at MIT, you were part of uh, what I've learned is a very infamous fraternity. Uh, you yeah. are of some of the alum.
1: You know, I came to the states. I didn't know what fraternities were, so I, I kind of avoided them the first year. And then I, well, I had a lot of friends from this particular fraternity, Alpha Delta Phi, and uh, and then I joined it late, you know, a year later, and it really became kind of the you know the social center for 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 my life, and it was great. And, and Joe Chung was my you know, best friend and partner since then. And still today, you know, we met at the fraternity. We played in the band together at that time.
0: Oh, really? Okay, uh, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, uh, and it was, a, it was a strange time in the 80s. There were a lot of, you know, a lot of, I mean, obviously it's still the now, but the startup scene was really starting to percolate. So a lot of people at startups while they were in the fraternity, you know, we didn't, but but uh, folks like Brad Feld and, you know, Colin Angle, they were all contemporaries of, of, of Joe's and mine.
0: Wow, so were they in school the same time you were?
1: Yeah, we were living in the same in the house at the same time.
0: Wow, that's extraordinary. <laughs> the, like, you think of the success, right? Of like the, the people that are part of that fraternity. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It was. I don't. I not know if it was just you know weird coincidence or you know that the, sort of the times were kind of changing rapidly back then. Um, you know, there were no there were no PCs right. <laughs> we went to school and and uh, they were just starting to be. I'm um, I, I miss programming on punch cards by one year. The wow. U- me at MIT, yeah, <laughs> we Fortran using punch cards.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we are, that's crazy. And so, after MIT, what was your your first job? Um,
1: so, I was a political scientist at MIT. So, basically, I had you know basically no skills, um, <laughs> but I could write. So, I used to I used to make money as a as a technical writer uh, in school. Um, and so I, I got a bunch of jobs working for high tech companies, usually doing marketing writing or manuals, or, you know, even doing uh, training videos. So I kind of got into high tech by, by writing and then ended up, you know, at a company called Boston technology, uh, which was actually in the building right next door, oddly. Um, and, uh, and, uh, the company grew very fast. I was there from, you know, 13, I was at employee 13. I think I left it with, there was 500.
0: Is that uh, voicemail the, systems if I remember correctly? Yeah.
1: The first central office voicemail systems in the world. Yeah. Uh, and the founders of that company were, you know, really who I kind of learned uh, sort of the startup trade from, uh, you know, for good and bad, <laughs> all the things you don't want to do and the things you do want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott and Greg were, were, were really great uh, mentors to,
0: and was Joe there, or at what point did you and Joe decide to start a company together?
1: So Joe was in grad school during that time. He was in the Media Lab, and uh, and so uh, he Joe did some work for Boston, Boston Technology once in a while as a consultant. But basically, um, no, he was in grad school, and we had been talking for quite a few years about starting something of our own in the in the in the electronic music space, actually, which was what his field was at MIT. Um, and so that you know that conversation went on for you know four or five years. Uh, and then one day, you know, finally, Boston Technology was quite big. We had moved to the suburbs, which is not to my liking. And so one day I just quit and I called Joe. I said, hey, Joe, you're never going to get that PhD anyway. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: Let's just do that company. He's like, oh, okay.
0: okay. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: yeah, that's how we started, uh, started uh, ATG.
0: Okay. And so uh, then you started doing consulting. And yeah. then like. So
1: the- we we, we planned for five years to start a electronic instruments, you know, high-end electronic instruments, uh, company. We, we didn't do that for a single day of our, of, <laughs> we immediately started doing whatever people would pay us to do. So,
0: so high-end electronic instruments, like, like keyboards, like, what do you mean?
1: Well, so Joe was uh, running a group called the hyper instruments group in the media lab and what they were doing amongst other things is they were trying to figure out how to take, uh, at that time, very, uh, new DSP uh, technology, you could do live uh you know real-time adjustments to sounds um so they were doing things like wiring up yo-yo ma and his cello and figuring out how does a virtuoso uh use the instrument and then can you use that data the physical information from the body to extend now the range of his instrument electronically so you know it was so but there were things these were being sponsored by you know companies like yamaha and so on so we thought we would commercialize uh, into some form, into consumer instruments um, like keyboards, uh, some of this technology. Got it. Yep, we never did.
0: <laughs> never did it. <laughs> so what did it? What was the early beginnings of what you started doing?
1: Well, so what happened was uh, we started getting calls from places like museums that were interested in multimedia because that was new. And uh, so uh, the, you know, our, our first little gig was for uh, Liberty Science uh, Museum in New Jersey, and they wanted a system where kids could make choices and based on their choices, as they watch the video, the actual video would change. That was about the environment and so on. And so, you know, so we had to build hardware and software to do the, you know, essentially, you know, multimedia in a, in a, in a, in a public scale. Our second customer then became Apple computer, bizarrely. And they wanted us to use QuickTime, which is brand new, right? Digital video, uh, and it was the size of postage stamp. <laughs> um, and, uh, and they wanted to show this off in an art exhibit. So we did this crazy exhibit out in Japan for Apple. Um, and, uh, and then sort of word got out that we were doing this crazy stuff. And then Chicago Museum of Science, uh, called us for a, a very big uh, exhibit of, of, of all kinds of things to do with imaging and, you know, medical imaging was becoming big, right? MRIs and CAT scans, Jurassic park had just come up, you know, 3d, uh, you know, VR was brand new, uh, 3d stuff for the space shuttle was new. So they wanted to show all this stuff off and it was all brand new technology. Um. So we that was kind of the beginnings of of ATG actually building a team because then we had enough money to hire a bunch of other you know media lab folks and 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 artists and designers and we did a a big exhibit um, uh, for Chicago. We we actually won that year along with the Holocaust Museum the 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 two, the two uh, best museum awards in in the U S. for that exhibit. Um, and so that was kind of seminal because we actually put our team together then, and then we started doing a bunch of other things in that sort of feel of, of you know multimedia uh, user um, uh, groupware types of things so an ad agency asked us to look at groupware shy day advertising actually is a very famous agency um and then harvard business school asked us to build their first online uh curriculums management system they were giving all their mbas uh, laptops and they wanted all their course material to be online and that had never happened. So we so we built that that first uh, first system for for Harvard, and uh, and then Sony wanted to do things for movies and and looking at you know being able to show trailers. Um, so so these you know this was three or four years, and then suddenly it was ninety three and ninety four, and the web happened, mm-hmm. and suddenly all our customers were like, well, what about this web stuff? And they were like, <laughs> like, well, what should we do on the web? And we're like, well, what do you want to do on the web? And they're like, <laughs> we want to sell stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and obviously it was a longer conversation than that. But, but so suddenly all our customers wanted to do web-based commerce or customer type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were no tools, so we started building that for them. And then we realized that like, places like Sony had you know, a lot of traffic. And no web servers were actually fast enough to handle it. Like there was only Netscape. I mean there was barely anything out there that you know none none of it could handle uh, capacity. So we built our own, which turned into our first product, Dynamo. Dynamo, yep. And uh and, and 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 then we built the first sort of commerce system and first personalization sort of system. All you know, because what our customers were trying to do was hard to do, and then we accidentally ended up with this product that, you know, eventually ended up being one of the you know the best ones in the in, in the market. So there was this period of a couple of years where we transitioned from a, essentially a high-end consultancy into a bona fide you know, product company. Um, although we, we were, you know, were feeling our way in the dark. We didn't know how to sell this stuff. We had, we had got, got everything wrong. Right? We got the pricing wrong, the distribution channel wrong. We were selling to the wrong people. <laughs> so.
0: Now, there's one fun fact. In, you know, anytime I'm doing my research before this podcast, I always discover one thing that I'm like, no way. So uh, you guys created movie phone. In the early um, days of right. consulting, that's so, right. That's one
1: the, uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> so before the, before dynamo, you get, that's kind of, was like one of your.
1: No, there were our customer. We, I mean, we didn't create their system. We, you know, we created the first, uh, uh, time when, uh, when they, when they wanted to kind of be able to do it online or on a kiosk, actually. So
0: the first right. time, uh, a web-based
1: yeah, where you can buy your tickets and, and do that. So yes, that, that was the, that was kind of a, one of our early, early clients.
0: That's awesome. Okay. Uh, and then obviously the web took off, right? And you started building a very large anchor company in Boston. So, how did you get, you know, you, you talked about some of the uh, early days of the, getting the pricing wrong and, you know, just all these, uh, you know, bumps along the road. Uh, you know, how did you figure things out in the early days to where you got the company to an IPO?
1: Well, so, so the, I mean, there are obviously a lot of, different kinds of challenges. The first challenge was we didn't really have any outside funding, right? So we had been working as a, you know, modestly profitable consultancy and, and the consultancy is nice in the sense that, you know, you, you're pretty much making a profit, you know, as long as you have work and, and we had lots of work, but then when we started building a product, you know, products take ages to get <laughs> any money in the door. So it was kind of a very painful process. Um, where we kind of lucked out was that all our customers and at that time it was Sony Harvard Business School, I think movie Phone, perhaps still at that time, a couple of others, they were kind of asking us to build the same thing. So I did something a little unusual. I said, well, look, you know, we're going to build this stuff for you. It's costing you a million dollars. But how about I keep all the IP? And uh, they'd be like, well, (laughs) why would we do that? (laughs) And I said, well, if we keep it, then next year you'll have a product. But if you don't, you're going to have an obsolete system that you paid a million bucks for and literally that conversation would take 30 seconds and they'd be like oh, "That makes sense um so our, our funding came from literally from our own clients mm-hmm. uh, with a promise that now that we'd support the product going forward and so that was kind of almost our VC our capital right but it but it also meant that we were heavily heavily uh in, is not even the right word we built exactly what our customers wanted Right. And so we were not guessing like they'd tell us, well, here are all these issues we have, you know, BMG Music at a music club. I don't know how many millions of users and Maybe in one of them, a different music <laughs> club thing to every single person uh, to the I mean, to the point where in their Christian club, they couldn't show a product skew that had six, six, six in the number. But I mean, there's millions of product SKUs. Uh, we have to build systems where we just look for that string, take it out, fake it, put in a fake string, and translate it back out. If you're looking at the Christian music club, right. Right. So, I mean, this is stuff that you know you wouldn't know unless you're actually working with these kinds of large clients. And so I guess a lot of our learning really happened that way. You know, we have not known about the enterprise software business if it weren't for that. We thought we were selling software in a box like Microsoft because that's the software we bought, right? Right. Uh, and uh, no, it's like, oh, no, no, you, you sell software for hundreds of thousands of dollars to really big clients. And, the, you know, we had a sales force, an inside sales force on the phones calling people. And, you know, that was ridiculous. I mean, that. and then, you know, we got a, we found a, a Lauren Kelly, who uh, was very successful with us. Um, she had been at uh, Borland and a bunch of other places, so she came in as a consultant. Took one look around and said, "You know, you're doing this all wrong." And so I'm like, "Well, why don't you help us?" She's like, "Well, I'm about to have a baby in three months." I'm like, "So what?" <laughs> you know. So she came on board and basically fired everybody in sales, built a brand new sales team. Uh, later on, after she had her baby, she came on full time, and you know, built the entire ATG sales force. But you know, those kinds of things happen throughout ATG where you brought in people. You know, Bill Wittenberg, who you know came in from it was GM at Lotus. He came in and built out our engineering team um, so it was you know it's, it's getting the right people at the right time that allowed you know the, the organization to, to scale
0: and at that point in time there was like a big professional services element of implementing the software too it wasn't SaaS; it was you know behind the firewall type stuff
1: oh yeah um, so that's another good point that all, almost all our clients were looking for custom stuff on top of our product um, and then the, the big transition we wanted to make was to get other system integrators you know, so at that time, you know, places like Science and biont yeah,
0: IXL, Razorfish,
1: you know, all all those all those companies were getting in the web design game, and we had a reputation of being really good, so they didn't kind of like us very much, and we were trying to say, why don't you build in our product? And they're like, wait a minute, you're a competitor, and so it was really a struggle for a year or two where you know clients would buy our product and then want our services. We didn't want to do that much services because we're trying to scale the product but our, our, our other competitors wouldn't work on our product. So it was actually on the BMG product uh, uh, deal when we won it. We won the services and we won the product deal and, uh, and Cambridge technology partners. So Bob Jett was over at CTP. So they were they came in second on the services side. And so we turned to BMG and said, listen, hire them for the services by our product. And so we literally walked over the deal to CTP and said, take the million dollar services side, mm-hmm. you know, like, really? <laughs> and, and, uh, and so that was the beginning of a great partnership, right? So then they really believed us and then they trained a bunch of people on Dynamo and, and that kind of opened the floodgates then, you know, Anderson consulting and, and then eventually, you know, IBM was was competing on the product side with us, but IBM global services would use our product mm. because it worked, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> they were not, they were not forced to use their own product. But that moment where we kind of gave away the business to CTP was the minute when system integrators actually believed us. Okay, these guys really are going after the product business and they're walking away from a million dollar services deal. Fine. You know, so that was, that was, that was a great moment. And, um, I mean, great moment. It, it took years. <laughs> but then ended, we ended up with 50 channel partners and that that cha- that really made um, the big difference for us from a product point of view.
0: Did you ever raise outside capital?
1: Um, we did, um, you know. So we eventually, so we 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 got in, in deep trouble a couple of times because of this problem of doing so much services work and and trying to uh, fund the product. So there, you know, a bunch of times where we literally couldn't pay, you know, couldn't pay uh, salaries, um, uh, which are which are difficult. And at one point, we got a group of uh, investors in kind of save our, you know, save our skins. Uh, at the last minute, including uh, including Scott Jones, who was you know the founder of, of Boston Technology and various other people, and uh, so we took a, a couple million that way at one point when we were you know and th- business was actually doing very well. We had these big customers, but they paid very slowly, mm-hmm. cash flow, right? Typical uh, startup issues. Um, but then later on, um, we also took a round from SoftBank, um, and SoftBank had been wanting to put money in. Case, like, ah, I don't know, blah, blah blah, but we eventually did take it after we had, you know had some. Close uh, shapes. Um, and we took about, I forget how much, we took, probably about five to seven million at that time in that round. Um, but that was right before we went public. So we literally didn't spend any of that money. Wow. So, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say it was a, uh, you know, I wouldn't suggest a strategy to anybody. <laughs> we, uh, we survived, but, uh, you know, don't try this at home.
0: Right. And so what, what was it like finally getting to that point of, of going public? I mean, that was 1999, the go go days
1: yeah so that was a that was a mixed blessing obviously because um at that time those are dot-com days where you know it's you know pets.com and you know mm-hmm. pets.com. um and so it was a little crazy because no one could dif- differentiate between a dot-com business and you know we were actually a software company selling you know real products we were <laughs> really had revenue <laughs> and uh and uh we weren't sort of blowing through a lot of you know venture capital this kind of feels a little bit like these days actually but um, so it was it was it was it was tricky. Um, one of the main reasons we went public at that time was that our primary competitor then um, was public. Uh, that was Broadvision.
0: Uh, vision, yep. mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so they were exactly in our space, personalization and, and commerce. Um, they had a lot of money in the bank. So and and of course we were pitching you know, places like American Airlines and Deutsche Bank and all these huge organizations. So. You know, in sales calls, Broadvision would always be you know uh, saying, "Hey, well, you know if you can't go with a t got no money in the bank you're gonna you know trust their all your e-commerce strategy these kids are not going to be around they don't have, you know so so that was a kind of a problem so um and so then uh, as we were about to go public, then Broadvision sued us uh for for you know uh for patent infringement mm. uh, And, uh, you know, to uh, presumably to kind of block uh, us from going public. Mm -hmm. The funny thing that happened was that, you know, most people didn't really think, although we were winning a lot of customers from Broadvision, Broadvision would usually win a a deal, go live six months later, system would fail, and then they'd hire us. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this happened, you know, famously with American Airlines, which became a big national story. And all the investors were like, "Oh, wait a minute! Something's going on here. You know, these ATG guys are really coming on the scene." But no one really knew it until Broadvision sued us. Mm-hmm. So it totally put us on the map. It, <laughs> it helped
0: that, you. <laughs> Analysts
1: said, "Oh my God, they really <laughs> are their competitor." But, you know, we never see ATG and no any blah, blah blah. Which is, was you know, eighty percent of the time we were there. So when they sued us, it, it kind of <laughs> it helped us in <laughs> our way. Um, uh, so we managed to go public, but yeah, it was it was crazy times there, um, you know from the point of view of the stock market. Um, we were happy to, of course, you know, go public, get the money in the bank and and uh, uh, and and so on. but it was you know, it's pretty frothy, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, not the not the uh, I don't know, not the best use of one's time, um, but I think we we sort of had to do it in a lot of ways,
0: yeah, it was another milestone in the company as far as funding it. Right, right. Because we, we raised like I think it was two hundred million, right, from the IPO.
1: No, no, we raised. Um, I think it was probably about seventy as we the first.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, we, we you know, we, we had a secondary afterwards. It was about, it was about
0: seventy. Got it. Okay, got it. And then obviously you continued on. That's just another milestone in the company. You Still needed to now, you know, report to the street quarterly earnings, and now things yep. get really difficult because everything's public.
1: Yes. Yeah. So you know, uh, from from a personal point of view, obviously, you know, spending a lot of time with investors and lawyers is a lot less fun than building products and talking to customers. So that was a a very big change in in in, my in in my life. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, spending a lot of time on the road and and holding people's hands and so on. Um, So so yeah, obviously, very big change in in, uh, not the corporate culture. I think corporate culture remained very very strong um, before and after IPO. But, you know, there's obviously we're growing really fast, picking up people all over the world. We had offices in Europe and San Francisco, and Australia and Singapore. So, you know, suddenly it was a, it was a very, it was a very different scene.
0: <laughs> and you guys survived, meaning it was the go-go days, then the crash. And yeah, exactly. ATG survived, right? And I'm sure that must have been incredibly difficult to manage a company through that period of time where every company was just going belly up.
1: Yeah, that was um, I mean the you know the the market dropped so precipitously and so fast. I mean it was like 60 days, right? 60 days I'm out, you know, visiting Sun Microsystems, they are building sun.com on our platform and HP and you know, at that and then suddenly, you know, <laughs> crickets, right? Mm-hmm. Suddenly, held all their orders and no one knew what was going on and you know, from one day to the next like what's going to happen next. Um so yeah, that was that was tough and and you know, Having to fire, you know, three hundred people, four hundred people is uh, just not a pleasant experience, especially when you know that worked for a lot of people that have been there for a while, and, and and so that was the that was the you know that's the that's the that's the, that's the, the worst part of uh, worst part of the job, right? Um, the layoffs and so on.
0: Now, what, um, what do you what do you think you learned? Like, what was the takeaway that helped a keep the company afloat? B the people that were remaining like still like engaged and you know. Excited to be part of the culture.
1: Yes, it, it, it was interesting. I mean, you know, we had uh, for for some reason or the other, we only paid attention to it later. I mean, not not that late, but I mean, when we were you know starting to grow, um, ATG had a reputation of being sort of like this cult, you know, and 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 people were very loyal. And and um, and uh, earlier on, like when we first had problems, and you know, we're not paying our salaries, you know, on time and so on. Um, I found out later that a whole group of engineers had gone out for drinks and. Talking like, what do you think? Like, gosh, you know, we're gonna have jobs, blah blah blah. And, and a couple of them said, hey, you know, like I like it here. I'll, I'll give them a shot. I'm sticking around. And and everyone said, okay, us too, right? Um, so that kind of um that kind of stuff happened a lot. Um, and we we're always really honest. Like, okay, we you know we're, we can't pay our bills, but you know our customer is gonna pay us. And you know if we finish the you know the project, they'll pay us. And so everyone sort of got on board, realizing that we we're being honest with them. So I think that was the main thing being honest with people um, and 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 being able to, you know, let them know what's going on, even if the reality is, you know, gosh, we, you know, we, we have to lay you off, you know, we can't, we can't pay you. Um, so I think, I think that really helped, you know, helped a lot. Um, and the fact is a lot of people, you know, often people would leave and then come back and, you know, sometimes their, their spouse was still working with us. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I, I think, I think, I think just being transparent is uh probably the, the was the secret there
0: okay and then you survived and then ultimately led to an acquisition by oracle
1: yeah well i, I you know joe and i had kind of uh left uh by then right around 2002 uh we had stepped stepped out stepped back okay. Got for it for a while um and uh and the company at that point was sort of in 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 uh, wouldn't not really survival mode we we're doing well the, the market sort of came we had our good customers the market wasn't roaring back but you know we, we had a good product and 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 the company was stabilized uh but it was almost sort of like you know sort of slow and steady for a while till the market sort of built up um you know and and you know if you think about it at one point the company was worth seven billion dollars right which is just ridiculous and it, and it, you know i don't know what it probably should have been worth at that time my guess is probably it was worth at that peak probably should have been worth half a billion mm-hmm. and then you know and then after the crash at one point it was worth like a hundred million dollars right it was the stock was at one you know from 120 <laughs> to one you know which is also not accurate um so the oracle purchase at a, at, a, at a billion was probably actually the, a real price. I think it was probably was worth that, you know, they certainly thought it was worth that. Um, but yeah, it's it's it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, the, the problem with the stock market is then everyone's kind of looking at their stock and, you know, watching the screens and, you know, mm-hmm. working. Um, it would it'd be an interesting thing to kind of create a, a product where companies can give uh, sort of a, a, you know, stock that is uh, smoothed out, right? We've talked, Joe and I have talked about that. Hmm, maybe we should build an instrument where you know, you can give a special kind of share to your employees, which you know doesn't follow daily movements.
0: Okay, it's a good idea. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, there was such a fluctuation back then as far as the stock prices. Exactly. The now, now,
1: like a trailing indicator or something.
0: Now, this software is still part of the Oracle suite today, right? Like it's still being used and part of the core e-commerce you know, suite from Oracle. And
1: and, uh, and you know, Oracle was on a tear there for while right, I think they bought uh, about 70 companies in four or five years. Uh, yeah. you now, uh, not all of them for a billion dollars, but quite a few of them were. Um, and 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 ATG was kind of left uh, operating kind of as it was, um, and I think largely still is. There's quite a few of our people who are still over there and 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 happy. So yeah. you know, it wasn't one of those uh, acquisitions where you know everything sort of got destroyed and cultures destroyed. So I think uh, that was a that was that was very um, it's just well handled.
0: And what's also impressive is the number of alumni that are in the Boston tech scene that have founded companies or in leadership roles at others. It's just an, an amazing list. We compiled one of our infamous spider webs a while back that just showcased them all. It was like a year ago we published it.
1: That's right. That's right. Now it's uh, it, it's it's neat seeing uh, you know, sort of the tentacle spread. <laughs> yep. um, some of them have come back. Come some have come back. Come back here. So um, some of some of our. Some of the people who used to run engineering at ATG are now running engineering for one of the uh, red star companies. And, uh, so it's, it's nice, uh, it's nice getting people back.
0: Well, that's a perfect segue. Let's talk about what you're up to these days with, uh, with red star. So what, what is red star?
1: So, uh, yeah, so, uh, Joe and I, so my original partner, um, uh, and I around eight years ago decided to, you know, do something new again together. And we thought we'd just do some angel investing. And we very quickly realized that that's a terrible idea. Um, and uh, from a, you know, from an investment point of view um, and since we didn't really, you know, unlike some angel investors would pretty much just like to, you know, go around shopping cigars and sounding important. Um, not really our style. So we said like, there must be a better way of doing this. So we came up with um, this idea that why don't we just, why don't we come up with a better way of starting companies? so red star basically is a you know now i guess they call it sort of foundry model or uh you know studio model uh investment so we we don't invest in anybody else's ideas we actually do our own research in, in market areas decide what market areas might be interesting come up with ideas as to how you might enter it and then essentially build a company uh, fund it run it bring in management as as it grows and then and then you know spawn it off so um so that was Red Star's idea, and and you know we we had these grandiose plans of starting two or three companies a year, and then we realized that's actually pretty hard. So then we said, okay, how about one company a year? So that was a little better. So now it's just kind of one every two years, <laughs> manageable. Uh, but yeah, no, we've we've started about four or five companies in the last eight years, um, and, uh, and 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 uh, you know one of them we basically shut down after it didn't do so well. Uh, one of them was sold very. Or actually, one was sold to Nannigans very early, um, and then uh, you know one third channel uh, is doing really well. So they have grown um, and now moved out of our facilities, and they're, they're on Canal Street now. Uh, Gina Ash, the CEO over there, you may know her. Um, no, Gina,
0: well, she's amazing.
1: So uh, yeah, so so Gina's doing great over third channel. They've taken outside money, outside capital now, um, and then uh, and then Kinto was our next company in the in the health tech. Uh, space. <clears throat> yeah, so that has been around for a couple of years now. Um, and and our latest uh, one is, uh, we just uh, announced a couple of weeks ago, is a financial literacy curriculum for for, for students in high school and college, uh, money experience.
0: Money experience. So let's talk about money experience. So what, what led you down the path of starting that company?
1: So what was interesting, I've done a bunch of stuff in education over the years, separately from Red Star. Uh, I have a gap year uh, company called Winterline. And uh, it it takes kids around, uh, it teaches them, you know, a hundred skills in in nine months in in sort of 10 countries around the world. But we couldn't find any good curriculum in financial literacy, no matter how hard we looked. Everything was, you know, just really bad. Um, And so I thought, well, what if we build our own? And then it turned into a a, a pretty big item in terms of it was was complicated and it was a big market. Um, So some folks are working on some other ideas. We put onto that, and we we're looking at consumer finance anyway, um, and, and sort of changes in consumer finance. So, um, so we ended up uh, building, uh, building this, this curriculum uh, uh, because of that. Um, but if you, if you, if you kind of look at the uh, how financial literacy is taught today, the problem is that it's usually taught specifically about, you know, investment instruments, right? Or uh, retirement plans 401ks or, you know, your house mortgage, it's very technical. So it's not surprising that it, that most people just don't like the stuff. Kids are not, you know, not excited by it. Um, so we took a completely different path to it and we said, well, why don't we attach things that people care about to, you know, financial implications? You know, what car do you want to buy? Where do you want to live? You know, what, what do you want to do with your free time? You know, who do you date? All those things have financial consequences. Um, and so we, we took a very different approach, which is no math and, and not technical stuff, but talk about life priorities and quality of life and things that you know young people actually you know, have an opinion about, and then say, okay, look, but what does this mean over time? So we built a simulator, which actually simulates your entire life from graduating from high school right to retirement. Um, and, uh, and the simulator has this underlying financial model that we call the supermodel. And basically, it'll calculate everything from where you live, what you do, the job you have, what you spend money on. Um, and so you go through the simulator and you make choices and we calculate the results for you. But we also calculate how you're doing versus your own priorities. So if you say, I like travel and leisure as a priority, and, but then you take a job where you're making a ton of money but you have no free time, now your quality of life meter is going down. Mm-hmm. If your money might be going up. So, you know, there's no way of winning in the simulator. It's only, well, this is what happens. And if those are your priorities, okay, fine. But be aware of here's what happens then. This is a graphic novel. It's 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 a lot of it's a lot of fun. It's actually it's very engaging. Um, My wife's gone through it about five times already this week. (laughs) Gosh, (laughs) Um, but um, but uh, yeah, so that's that's what the offering is.
0: Very cool. Then what's the the business model behind it? Like how you plan on generate revenue through these, uh, you know, teaching financial literacy.
1: So we're um, it's it's so it's a curriculum product and, and software license. So it's it's a SaaS it's a SaaS software license per student. Uh, we're actually we've been piloting in high schools and colleges and even middle schools. Uh, oddly, it wasn't designed for that, but it seems to actually be quite popular there too. Um, so we're we are you know now uh, going and selling into you know public school districts, private schools, uh, colleges, um, universities. Um, so yeah, I mean it's 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 as simple as uh, you know a, a, a license per student.
0: Got it. Okay. So you're selling it to actually schools, though, or is it the consumer actually buying, like the students' parents would purchase it through the school or is it to the school direct?
1: Um, It really depends. I mean, you see all those things, right? So in some colleges, your bookstore is, you know, your your college bookstore sells you the textbooks, right? So it could be sold that way. In In other schools, they want to just provide it so the school buys it as part of what what they want to provide to kids so we've seen all of the above we, we you know we don't have a direct consumer uh sale right now but we are thinking of it since it is built we actually have a curriculum to train the teachers as well and since it's not really technical or mathy um almost anyone can teach this right you don't have to be a certified you know public accountant to to to, to teach this or you, know, you don't have to be certainly don't need to be like the math teacher or the science teacher so, um, so we we have our curriculum could well be used in in homeschools, for instance, as well, and bought directly by the parent. Uh, my my guess is we'll probably release it in that in that in that mode uh, pretty soon as well.
0: Okay, very cool. So, being that you've you know started ATG with Joe and now have started multiple companies under Red Star, like what advice would you give to entrepreneurs about figuring out? your thesis and product market fit? Like, I'm sure you've had lots of ideas that sounded interesting, yet you're like, nah, I don't think there's enough of a market for it. So like, how do you go through that cycle?
1: Yeah, that's, well, so that's kind of where Red Star was was a, a conversation between, you know, Joe and I over a while saying like, how, why do so many companies do so badly, right? Why, why why is the failure rate so high in startups? And obviously lots of answers to that, but but I think the primary one we realized that, that a lot of young entrepreneurs uh, are are really, driven by a specific idea first right so they have this idea and then they're trying to find a market for it and that idea probably sounds neat to them because they needed it themselves but they they might be the only person in the world who actually thinks that way right so red stars our whole you know concept was let's look at, at markets first and then decide if there is a product or service that makes sense and and most entrepreneurs don't do that they they already have they're already latched on an idea and we really don't care about our idea as long as the markets being served. And, and I suppose our experience at ATG uh, was kind of formative because none of the stuff that we built at ATG would we ever have come up with ourselves, right? Our concept was some kind of electronic keyboard, you know, which never happened, you know, thank God, <laughs> right. um, But um, so so our, you know, learn learn from your client, learn from your market uh, rather than, you know, be attached to an idea. And at Red Star, that's been really useful because, you know, we, we go into markets that we know nothing about and, and that seems a little counterintuitive. Uh, people will say, well, you know, where's your market expertise? But the counter argument is that if you don't know anything about a space, you start off pretty humble because you know you don't know anything about it, right? So you tend to now listen more and uh, you know, talk to other CEOs in the space or investors in the space or customers and say like what's going on here? And we spend, you know, years looking at that before we even come up with a product idea. So I think you tend to catch things that people in the field have missed because, you know, they've been doing health tech for 30 years of their life and they think they've got it all figured out and any changes in the market, they just don't notice, right? It's just background noise. But for us, it's like, oh, wow, this is how this thing works today. And so we come at it kind of cold. So, so I guess my advice to entrepreneurs is, you know, try to uh, go in sort of cold into, you know, to try to understand what's really happening in the market. Without necessarily having a, don't, don't have a solution first, Right, find a problem. Um, and so that's kind of been, been our style now and we're trying to form, make it more formal. Um, although I guess the way it happened was accidental, you know, with ATG.
0: I mean, the, uh, it is kind of unorthodox as far as you know, looking at an industry versus having the idea and then figuring out if there's a market. So, uh, that is, I think unique and very helpful for entrepreneurs, but the other hard part is getting customers, right? You've done both B2B consumer. So how do you get initial traction? going like what advice would you give there
1: well yeah it really depends on the market right so um, it, you know a b2b market is obviously very different in terms of your channel um, you know I mean obviously ATG channel was critical which is why the system integrator uh, you know a, a co-opting system integrators to, to sell your product was kind of like the key to success in that sort of space um, you know, one of our companies, Kinto, in the health tech space, that really is a direct consumer play. We're not going through hospitals or insurers or anything like that. So that is much more an online uh, acquisition play. With other kinds of um, supporting, you know, we have a deal with the Alzheimer's Association, um, and so try to get the word out to the, the market you you know you, you're choosing to 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 get to. In the case of money experience of course at schools and colleges so you're trying to get to the decision makers right like we're gonna we're gonna buy it you know so you know where who has who has the budget who has the need all the really basic things um you know who's who's really your customer you may think the customer is you know students but no your customer is the administrator at the school that buys the product right or uh, or the system integrator that's actually going to incorporate your product into another offering, you know, a bigger offering to to an enterprise client. So deciphering who your real customer is, is is, is sort of key. And then of course, getting one, (laughs) you know, um, your first customer determines so much about what happens to your future because it sort of determines your second customer. Um, And uh, you know, so it's, it's so, you know you it's really important to be lucky. (laughs) So entrepreneurs don't forget to be lucky. (laughs) Uh, You know, your first customer often then determines, you know, a lot of your your future path. Um, But uh, no, that's I mean, but uh, I'm being a little silly, but but the reality is try to choose a customer that's a good representative of your product. Because your first customer does become the reference for your second one. And then suddenly, you've got three, and suddenly you're specialized. (laughs) And it happens really fast, right? you got three, four customers, everyone's got your pegged as to what you sell. Right. So sometimes you don't want to take a customer if it's a bad representative of what your product is because you get stuck with it, right? So be careful of those.
0: So find pain, meaning a problem where someone's willing to spend money to solve it. Like I learned that, like I, I did Sandler, Sandler sales training in one of my first jobs out of college. It was part of the uh, training. And I'll never forget, they're like, no pain, no sale. It's that simple. <laughs> so, I'm like, that's carried through my whole life.
1: I often say, uh, you know, don't invent food before hunger.
0: Right? Yeah. Exactly. Not a
1: good idea, but not a <laughs> no.
0: Yeah. You've been building companies in Boston for a long time. How has the tech landscape evolved?
1: Oh wow! Um, well, obviously, you know. Boston has changed in the sense that the you know the new big powerhouse is biotech, right? And uh, and so there's a lot of you know biotech money, of course, and a lot of biotech activity. But it also means that you know in general Boston has become a you know one of those those big draw cities for for talent. Um, so I mean that's obvious with you know every building going up around us every every month, and uh, so it's kind of crazy. And of course the rents skyrocketing. <laughs> Our rents I think has tripled here in in, in the last eight years. So, you know, God knows how long we'll be able to stay here. Um, so that, you know, so, you know, ta- to access to talent is is good. Um, but of course, in, in software, the, the, you know, salaries are skyrocketing, right? Like the last thing we want is, you know, please, Amazon, do not come here. You know, wherever <laughs> you go, don't come to Boston. <laughs> so just send your deliveries, they'll be fine. <laughs> but, um, but, uh. But yeah, what else? I guess there, you know, some things are a lot easier than the past. Um, I think, you know, for for entrepreneurs, the, the the huge thing is that you can get space short term, right? So, you know, the WeWorks and CICs and being able to get space and not have to uh, sign a five-year lease every time you're moving. I mean, ATG we moved eight times in ten years, and it was just like pulling teeth. And of course, each time. You know, they don't believe, they're like, well, you're only 20 people. Why do you need space for 100? It's like, there's going to be 100 next year and, and we'll be out of space and there's a five-year lease. So um, that has improved, right? The ability to be able to quickly set up shop, Wi-Fi, walk into an office, you can go into engine. You know, we've used these spaces sometimes for our companies and, okay, you know, sign a contract next morning at 11, your team's up and working, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's fantastic. Um, yeah,
0: co-working's made a huge impact to yeah. that. Absolutely.
1: Really beautiful you know MIT is trying to do a lot of stuff and 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 encourage uh, you know people in their in you know in their space and 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 and, 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 and real estate and and uh, and now they're trying to have you know some of the more expensive lab facilities available also outside the MIT community to startups and you know nano nano manufacturing and so on so that I think we we'll, and, and we see that in this in our complex here in Kendall Square uh, the, the 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 shared lab spaces which mm-hmm. are for with very expensive equipment, and that's kind of partially subsidized. Um, so those kinds of things will add another dimension, I think, in Boston to like being able to do you know very complex things with less capital outlay. Um, so that's 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 also brand new. It's changed a lot.
0: Yeah, no, there's so much going on, but uh but all these different aspects have made such an impact, like co-working, the ability to you know build a product on Amazon Web Services and then you know, if it doesn't work out, obviously you can kind of pivot. So That's it's a uh, feeling, it's, right? you get, you actually
1: get a bunch of customers like, okay, well, just those, just jam more instances on the server and you're, they're good to go And in the yeah. past. We're lugging them around.
0: Exactly. Uh, well circling back to the band. So you're recording again,
1: we've been recording. Um, I mean, you know, I write sort of all the time. Um, we, we've, we've recorded about, you know, about a dozen mm-hmm. tunes in the last year, which we'll start releasing, um, and as soon as I get another recording space, I'll, I'll, you know, record it uh, a, a bunch more. Um, so hope to get into a cycle where, you know, I can play live more frequently, which is always a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, no, that's gotta be such a, an amazing experience playing in front of a crowd.
1: Yeah. That's all that's, uh, that's kind of one of the best moments, uh, you know, in life.
0: <laughs> well, please keep us posted when, uh, when you do release some new music, we'll get it out there to the, the Venture Fizz community.
1: We'll do, we'll do.
0: All right, G, well, thank you so much for sharing your words of wisdom here. Like, this was amazing. I was excited to hear the whole ATG story and then obviously what you guys are up to at Red Star, which is uh, pretty awesome. But uh, thanks so much for your time and all your kind advice.
1: Thank you. Pleasure. And, uh, yeah, come visit. we
0: Will do. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.